There's an outline sheet in your worship folder if you'd like to use that as we move through this message. I've just been, I'm wondering, have you, have you ever, have you ever just been thirsty? Not thirsty that needs just a little sip of water. But the thirsty that consumes your thoughts, the thirsty that has your tongue swollen and lips cracked and craving relief. Have you ever, have you ever just been thirsty? Once fighting a forest fire, working for the Forest Service in the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness up in Idaho, I was so hot I thought my glasses frames were going to melt. My eyes were running tears, not just a little bit, but actually just running tears from smoke. The sweat was pouring off me. Everything was running off my face so much, I couldn't tell what was sweat and what was tears. I, I couldn't get enough water. Have you, ever, have you ever just been thirsty? The sad thing, the sad thing that happened is that one of my partners and I were given bad water from contaminated canteens. So on top of the thirst, we became ill. <laughs> have you ever just been <laughs> thirsty? We had to be flown out. The small airstrip that we were scheduled to land on was fogged in. And so we had to be flown in a little Forest Service plane to an airstrip located in a, in a river canyon. And because of the fog, the plane had to follow the route of the canyon, just zigging and zagging through the canyon. So on top of the thirst, we were ill. We waited for transportation to a hospital clinic. We finally had landed at that little airstrip. And they put us on two World War II Army surplus cots in a storeroom. And it seemed like they had just forgotten about us. They'd called for something to come pick us up and to get us on out of there. But we just lay there in that back room on those little cots, ill. Have you ever just been thirsty? Our transportation turned out to be a pickup with a couple of air mattresses and blankets in the back, in the bed of the truck. And by the time we got to the clinic, we could hardly walk because of illness and dehydration. <laughs> Have you ever been thirsty? In the scripture that Darwin read just a bit ago that we're studying this morning, Jesus uses a powerful, powerful image that would immediately get the attention of the crowd around him. He, he cries out, let anyone who's thirsty come to me, come to me and drink. Now, in the arid Middle East, people understand thirst. But Jesus' declaration goes deeper than a physical thirst. And so we need to look at the context. We want to look at the background. We want to understand the, the setting of all this. Now, the setting... Is the, is the screen working? There we go. The setting, the background and the setting for chapters 7 and 8 of John's gospel is the temple, huge Herod's temple in Jerusalem. The occasion is the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is also called the Feast of Booths, 
B-O-O-T-H-S, booths. It was a celebration of thanks for the harvest. Usually occurred in late September or early October. It's associated with the autumn harvest. And it lasted, this festival, this feast lasted seven days. But it was such a joyous time, so much rejoicing going on, prescribed seven days in the law, but they enjoyed it so much they added two more. <laughs> they just had a great time. So they, they added two more days later. It was a time of prayer, asking for seasonal rains. Late autumn was a time of dryness in Israel, and strong, drenching rains had not been seen since the prior spring. Cisterns would be low, and springs would be weak, and the hills would be scorched, Renewing water was longed for, and so prayers for the refreshing of the land were plentiful. And what would happen is if rains actually came during the festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, that was all the more reason to rejoice and to give thanks to God. But the festival especially recalled the days of pilgrim life for the Hebrew people following their exodus all those centuries before, their exodus from Egypt, from slavery. And so they set up tents or booths as they celebrated and they remembered God's provision for them as they wandered during the 40 years out in the wilderness in the tents and the things that would just be picked up and moved and so on through, those, through all those years. Because this was a favorite and because it was a required feast, the normal population of Jerusalem of around somewhere around 600,000 would swell actually up to two to three million people. Now, each morning, great multitudes of people would gather at the temple. So imagine this throng of people moving toward the temple mount, up the hills toward the temple to be a part of this feast of the tabernacles. They would hold citrus fruit in their left hand, reminding them of God's provisional bounty. They would, in their right hand, they would hold three different kinds of branches, palm, willow, and myrtle branches that reminded them of God's presence with them as they pitched their tents, as they took the tent stakes, the tent poles down. And so citrus fruit in left hand, God's bounty, three different kinds of branches reminding them of the tent poles that they were continually having to pick up and move as they moved through the wilderness all those centuries ago as God's people. They recalled all of that, their journey through the wilderness. Now on each of the mornings, a procession of priests from the temple went down to the pool of Siloam. They traveled down south, out of the temple area, south into the Kidron Valley, and they got... The water, they went to the water of the pool of Siloam. Now this pool had been diverted and actually dug out of rock by King Hezekiah about 700 B.C. It was the main source of thirst-quenching water for the city. When all this procession reached the pool, the high priest would fill a golden pitcher with water. And so he would, he would bend down and take that golden pitcher and fill, fill that pitcher to the brim, overflowing with water. And then as they returned to the wall of the city from the southern part of the area down in the valley, they would go back up the hill and they would move back into the city through what was known as the water gate with a blast of trumpets and a choir and a throng of people would sing. And they would sing from Isaiah... You're 
too far. There we go. Isaiah chapter 12. And this, verse 3, this is, the, this is the verse that they would all shout out and sing together. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Let's give that a try, okay? Let's all say this out loud together. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now imagine that and imagine thousands upon thousands of voices calling that out and repeating that. They sang from a group of psalms known as the Hallel Psalms. Those are psalms in our Old Testament, Psalms 113 to 118. And Hallel comes from Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Thousands would be shouting all of this. Now, returning to the temple, the high priest would march around the altar of sacrifice. The choir would sing, and it's Psalm 118 here, O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. So the priest, the high priest, is marching around the altar. He's holding the golden pitcher full of water. And all the choir is singing, Lord, do save, we beseech thee. It's a prayer for God's salvation. It's a prayer for the coming of the Messiah. They're wanting the Messiah to come. Now, the priest would ascend the altar. He'd hold the, the golden pitcher high. And all the people that were gathered would shout, higher, and he'd hold it higher, and they'd shout higher, and he'd stretch and try to hold it higher. Because if you could actually, as the people of God, actually see the water pouring from the pitcher, it was an added blessing in your life. And so they would shout higher, higher, and everyone standing to watch the water begin to pour. The, the priest would pour from the golden pitcher down into a silver funnel, and that, would, that water then would spread across the floor of the altar as an offering to the Lord. Now, this procedure was followed each of the mornings of the festival, except that on the last day, the high priest circled the altar seven times. And as the water was poured from the golden pitcher, simultaneously, a drink offering of wine was poured out by another priest into a basin, remembering the thankfully completed grape harvest. So you've got the pouring of the water on the last day, and you've got the pouring of wine together simultaneously. Now, the pouring of water was a reminder of the miraculous provision of water from the rock that Moses struck in the wilderness when all the people were crying out for thirst. Now, when did all that occur? It's recorded in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. Now, in light of all of this then, the understanding and the, the background, the setting, a bit of setting, the special use of the water, a symbol of salvation for the, during the celebration. What we have here in the scripture that Darwin read just a bit ago, the actions, the words of Jesus take on fresh, exciting meaning here. Let's take a look then at the deeper meaning, the significance of the rock. Now to understand even more of what Jesus says and does during the feast, we need to take, take a look at what happened between the people out in the wilderness all those centuries before and their complaint against Moses and against God. So you've got Bibles near you. It's not going to come up on the screen. You've got Bibles you either brought with you from home or Bibles underneath the seat. Go ahead and get one, okay? Let's take a look at this. There's Bibles near you, okay? Take a look. Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, second book of the Old Testament, clear toward the front of the Bible. Okay, you've got Exodus chapter 17, Take a look with me at the progression here of what happens. Exodus chapter 17. Look at verse 2. 
The people are complaining. Now remember, they've, 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 been, they've been released. They're free. They're out in the wilderness. They've escaped. It's the exodus from slavery in Egypt. They're out in the wilderness. Now look at verse 2. They complain, give us water to drink. Look at verse 3. They ask, why did you, and they're asking Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and all of our flocks and herds, our livestock, why did you make us do that to die of thirst out here? And then they take another step and they ask in verse 7, look at the progression here, is the Lord among us or not? Now, don't miss the progression. Don't miss what's going on here. They're doing more than just quarreling with Moses. First of all, they first demand, they demand God's provision. They don't ask. They're not waiting. They're demanding from God. Give us water to drink. Then they deny God's protection. They deny his protection. Did you bring us out here in the wilderness just to die? Our children, our flocks and herds, the livestock? What's going on? They're denying God's protection. Then they doubt his presence with them. The, is the Lord among us or not? They actually had the audacity to judge God. Now, amazingly, amazingly, God gave them the much-needed life-giving water. Though they're rebellious, they're sinful people, God provided for their need in an amazing, merciful act of grace. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Moses, strike the rock. Now, he did that with his staff. Strike the rock. The water will come out of it for the people to drink. Water gushed out. Moses strikes the rock. Water gushes out, and it begins to flow freely. The people, demanding his provision, denying his protection, doubting his presence, are miraculously shown in a loving, merciful act of kindness everything that they're calling into question. Now, the Apostle Paul sees precisely this in God providing salvation through Jesus. This is an amazing little verse here in 1 Corinthians. Now, he's talking about, Paul is writing here, and he's talking about the people in the wilderness those centuries ago. They all ate the, the same spiritual food. He's referring to manna. They drank the same spiritual drink. That's the water from the rock. They drank from the spiritual rock, and that rock was who? That rock is Christ, Paul writes. That rock was Christ. The rock that Moses struck with his staff as a symbol of God and his salvation, in a sense, God took the blow. God took the blow of his own justice. And from him flowed life, life-giving water for his people. The Apostle Paul says that God did this too in the person of his own son, Jesus. Jesus was struck with divine judgment. Where did that happen? It happened on the cross. Now, are you seeing the, the, the depth? Are you seeing the meaning, the significance of what Jesus cries out here then during the height of all the celebration? All of the history, all of the background, all those people understood everything that they were declaring and singing about. And during the height of all this ceremony, everything that they're remembering, Jesus cries out what he does there in the temple. But there's more. There's more in this. John chapter 7 to chapters 10 focuses on the last six months of Jesus' life. The last six months of his earthly ministry. It's only going to be six more months, the time between the Feast of the Tabernacles here, around which these remarks are dated, and the Passover festival in the spring where Jesus, when Jesus will be crucified. 
Now, taking all of this into account then, don't miss the, don't miss the intensity. Don't miss the intensity of Jesus' cry, the crucial importance here of his meaning, of his teaching. On the last day of the feast, the, the day before all the crowds would dissipate, the day before all the crowds are going home. Jesus has all of these people. He's, he's watching and listening, and all of this ceremony is going on. But the next day, they'll all be gone. When will be his next opportunity to have that sort and that size of hearing? So Jesus, at this point, offers himself as the water of life. For seven days... The people have been singing, with joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. They've been singing that for seven days. For seven days the choir has been imploring, O Lord, O Lord, save us, we beseech thee. Now on the last day, during the height of the intensity of the ceremony, while both the water from the pitcher is being poured and the wine is being poured in the basin. At the height of this pouring, Jesus, John tells us, stands and says in a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. Do you catch now the meaning, the depth, the significance, the insight, the incredible power of what happens here? This feast and all that it recalled, everything that it conveyed, was actually celebrating him. Him. He couldn't contain himself. Everything about the ceremony, all the movement, all the singing, must have suddenly and abruptly just stopped. And every eye turned toward him. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. If you believe in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from you. It seems to be a composite of scripture that Jesus is referring to here because there's no specific prophetic scripture that appears in the Old Testament about rivers of living water flowing from within. Isaiah 32, verse 2, makes reference to streams of water in the desert, the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Isaiah 44, verse 3 says, I will pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. There are all kinds of others that make reference to this this kind of imagery. Water for drinking is one of the symbols of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Water for drinking, it's one of the symbols of the Holy Spirit. Just as water (coughs) satisfies thirst, produces fruitfulness, so the Spirit satisfies our inner person, our spirit, and enables us to bear fruit. John's comment, if you've got your Bibles open, John's comment about this is in verse 39. John writes, by this, he, that is Jesus, meant the Spirit. Those whom, who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified, meaning he hadn't yet gone to the cross. But we just need to ask, what's John getting at here with this explanation? He's saying that the Holy Spirit of God has always existed. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
what we call the Trinity. The Holy Spirit of God has always existed, but we never really enjoyed the power of God's Spirit until after Jesus was glorified, meaning his death on the cross. Then his resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit in, the, in power in the day of Pentecost. People had glimpses of the Spirit. They had foretastes of him. But after Pentecost, it's as though the floodgates are just opened up wide. So John, John's not saying that the Spirit did not exist, but that the Spirit was not yet present in the form that Jesus promised. He's saying that it took the life and the death of Jesus to lead up to the giving of the Spirit in power to live within, to indwell all of Jesus' followers, to live within believers in Jesus. So before Calvary, the Spirit was understood as a power, but now we understand the Spirit as a person because the Spirit is known to be none other than the presence and the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ always now with us. He comes to quench our spiritual longing. He comes to satisfy our spiritual thirst. Charles Spurgeon said, Thirst is a painful need, a conscious need, to a painful degree, a salutary warning that something very important is needed. It's our longing for God, our, our longing for meaning, for community and belonging and hope, for salvation. And that's Jesus' invitation to all who will believe in him, he says. J.C. Ryle says it this way, The saints of God in every age have been those who drank of this fountain of faith and were relieved. They felt their guilt and emptiness, and they thirsted for deliverance. They heard of a full supply of pardon and mercy and grace for all who would believe. They believed the good news, and they acted on it. Jesus promises to everyone who thirsts mercy, grace, pardon, peace, and strength, for he is the fountain of life. It's the Lord Jesus in the love and power of his Holy Spirit that brings life, that brings refreshment and satisfaction and fulfillment to our needy souls. We cannot fill that God-shaped void with anything other than what's meant to be filled with, God's Spirit. This side of heaven, we can try to fill it with all kinds of stuff, money and success and wealth and sports and on and on and on. Things we can acquire, things we can add on, things that we can go to, places we can, whatever. Degrees. You can have so many degrees, they call you Dr. Fahrenheit, and it still won't, it still won't satisfy to the degree that we need deep inside. He's not a sip of medicine that we drink only once. He's a river of living water giving blessings that have no end. He's peace for our soul, purity to help and to cleanse our minds and hearts with his holiness, power to endure even through the tough, the hard times, the trials of life, things this side of heaven. It's the Lord Jesus as living water within us that develops the character that we call the fruit of the Spirit. Paul refers to that in Galatians chapter 5. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit, things that develop, character traits that develop because of God's Spirit living within us. And so what does that mean? Well, it, it means he's love for our self-condemnation. He's joy for our discouraging times. He's peace for our anxieties, patience for our pressures. He's kindness for our hostilities, goodness for our inconsistencies. 
faithfulness for our waverings, gentleness for our judgmentalism, self-control for all of our turbulent desires. He's all of that. He's all of this and more. And it's not just the fact of our own need satisfied. It's not just our own sin forgiven. It's not just our own thirst quenched. It's that because of all this, we actually become, we actually become the means by which others find this wholeness, this salvation, this forgiveness, this life, this satisfaction as well. Jesus says it. Jesus says that rivers of living water will flow from us, from those who believe in him. We're not simply meant to be a satisfied believer then. That's great, and it's true, but it's more. We're not just meant to be a satisfied believer. We're meant to be useful believers who understand that we're blessed in order to be a blessing in the lives of other people. So it leads, to, leads us to some really intense, heartfelt questions for every one of us, every one of us here. Are the people of your life experiencing an abundance of blessing because of you? Are the people of your life experiencing an abundance of blessing in their life because of you? Because of Jesus' life-giving spirit flowing through you? It's been called a, a flood of grace through deeply satisfied hearts. A flood of grace outward to others because of your own deeply satisfied heart. So are we flowing Christ? Am I a spring of blessing? Contaminated canteens, I found this out all those years ago. <laughs> Contaminated canteens will never bring the needed health and wholeness that this thirsty world is dying for. You and I neither want to drink nor flow polluted water. We neither want to drink it nor flow it. At the feast, the Jewish nation was thinking and remembering. At the, at the fountain, Jesus wants us to thank and receive, then flow out into the world that he died to save. That's our calling. It's our mission. It's our reason for being. To bring him, as Darwin told us last week, to bring him the glory through our lives that bring others into relationship with him. Let anyone who's thirsty come and drink, Jesus said. And then, whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from them. Amen.